I suddenly realised, I remember saying, Michael is not coming home. I couldn't go to the door dead, but I knew Michael wasn't coming home. In the early hours of February the 14th, 1981, 48 young people died when fire engulfed the Stardust nightclub in Artane, Dublin. He said, uh, place is on fire, we're not going to get everybody out. Tell the officer to send absolutely everything that you have. Nobody saw it coming. If they did, it was already too late. Just people were screaming outside. You could hear them screaming. 846 people came through the doors that night. 44 would never come out. Four more died in hospital. It was one of Ireland's most catastrophic tragedies. And then everything went black. Then everybody started squealing and roaring and, and you could see the flames, do you know what I mean? And everybody then, it was just like wild animals. Getting out was a lottery. There was a state play and bars on the window, so we, we couldn't get out. Only fate decided who lived and who died. For some survivors, they never really got out. And for the families left behind, their souls were taken with their kids inside that building. Those that got out of the building got out of hell, but we've lived in hell. They were left at the mercy of an uncaring state. I want to know why the state interfered. I want questions answered. This is the story of the Stardust tragedy. Brought to you by the Irish Sun. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode features reenactments of courtroom dialogue and evidence, played by a voice actor. Some moments have been edited for cohesion and ease of listening, but remain a true reflection of what was heard in court. For six months, Jonathan Dowdall, his father Patrick and Jerry Hutch were living on the same landing in Wheatfield Prison. They weren't in isolation. The landing was primarily reserved for prisoners, its association to the Hutch gang. To segregate them from rival factions in the prison. The monk offered up his services as the landing's cook, dishing out meals for breakfast and dinner to his fellow comrades. Although Jerry hadn't seen a prison cell since his youth, he got accustomed to life pretty quickly. 
Dowdall, on the other hand, was finding things difficult. He'd been long used to the prison walls at this stage, having served three and a half years of his torture sentence. But the arrival of the monk made him really nervous. You see, Dowdall had been pondering a difficult decision for quite some time. He wanted out of prison. And he was facing another long spell ahead if he was charged with the murder of David Byrne. He had already inquired about witness protection back when he was first arrested. He was told then that that was a matter between his solicitor and the DPP. If he did go down this route, there was no way back. He'd be forever known as a rat. The tout. The man who betrayed Jerry Hutch. Knowing he had a meeting with a solicitor coming up the following day, he decided to sleep on things. But after a restless night weighing up all the consequences, Dowdall had made his choice. He was going to become a supergrass in the gangland trial of the century. It wasn't plain sailing, however. He'd have to enter into discussions with the cops and offer up any information that they would find useful in their case. Jonathan Dowdall's solicitor, Jenny McGeever, first contacted the Gardaí in November of 2021, asking him could he speak to the Gardaí, or certainly at that point there was an indication that this was the way he was kind of thinking. McGeever informed the Gardaí that her client had some important information they might want to know about. The Gardaí were interested in what Dowdall had to say, of course. At this stage, the case the state was building around Jerry Hutch left a lot to be desired. But they couldn't interview him in Wheatfield. That had set alarm bells ringing on the prison floor. If the Gardaí came to the prison to speak to him, they would have found out about it fairly quickly. So they had to wait until he was released the following April before they got a chance to actually speak to him to see what kind of information he had to give. And that all happened then in May. Dowdall was released from his torture sentence and he and his father were granted bail ahead of their upcoming trials for the Regency. The Gardaí had prepared for the former councillor's statement. This had to be all top secret though. The state couldn't afford for word to get out that Dowdall was cooperating. So the interviews were held in a Garda station at Dublin Airport. Last year, when he first spoke to Gardaí in Dublin Airport Garda station, and he made them a lengthy enough statement, or certainly he gave them a lot of information that they ordinarily would not have known before this. What Dowdall had to say was remarkable. The most important point was that he met Jerry Hutch in a park in Whitehall a couple of days after the Regency took place. He couldn't be sure which one. He said he was fairly sure it was the 8th of February in the morning sometime because he thought it was the day that Eddie Hutch was murdered, Jerry's brother. There, 
He told Gardy that Jerry Hutch had admitted to him that he was one of the gunmen responsible for the Regency Hotel attack. A massive admission from the former Sinn Féin councillor. He told cops, Jerry said it was him and Mago Gately who were at the hotel and shot David Bourne. He told me a lot of innocent people were going to be killed. He was all over the place and told me he wasn't happy about killing the young lad David Bourne. The Gardaí couldn't believe it. This was an incredible development. It totally changed the dynamic of the case. This could be their smoking gun. The meeting was informal in many ways. There was no recording facilities in that particular Garda station. Dowdall let it be known that he'd be willing to make an official statement and to speak at trial. But only if his family's safety was guaranteed. He wanted witness protection. He also wanted to be let off his charge of murder. But the state wouldn't agree to that. They did, however, agree to charge the former councillor with the lesser offence of facilitation to murder. The DPP accepted the charge, a lesser charge, days before he was due to go on trial for the murder. And he was subsequently jailed for four years for that. His father was subsequently jailed for two years for effectively booking the room. Three meetings in total took place between Dowdall, his wife and the Gardaí before the councillor would make a full voluntary statement on September the 23rd, 2022. There was no turning back now. The case was due to begin in early October, but it quickly became clear in the media that there'd been a sudden development in proceedings. The case was pushed back two weeks, as journalists learned of Dowdall's sudden change of heart. Absolutely. We were kind of shocked. You kind of tend to be shocked when you hear something like this. I mean, it's not off too often that state witnesses are used in here because there's not too many cases where they're required. It was like a Hollywood script. A fascinating time for Irish gangland. So much had come before this. So many lives lost. It felt like now. Public were entering the final chapter of the gangland feud. A feud to top them all. Jonathan Dowdall would tell the trial that Jerry Hutch specifically told him that he was one of the gunmen who carried out the murder of David Byrne at the hotel. Now, there was no other evidence to support this claim whatsoever. There was no CCTV, there was no forensic, there was nothing else. The Kinahans is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Damien Lane. If you liked what you've heard so far, please leave us a review on your podcast app. It only takes a second. Episode 9. Supergrass. On Wednesday, the 19th of October, Jerry Hutch entered the Special Criminal Courts. Hutch was in court with his two co-accused, Paul Murphy and Jason Bonney. We won't be covering their trials for this episode. Hutch had appealed to have his case heard before a jury, 
but the state had refused. He was going before the non-jury special criminal court. Over the next 30 minutes, normal procedures followed. Hutch was arraigned and his charge put before him. Not guilty, he confidently answered. So it wasn't until the case actually opened, uh, Sean Glan opened it to the three judges on the 18th of October, that we heard for the first time what the case against Jerry Hutch was, because we'd never heard before what their evidence was. And that's when it emerged that Jonathan Dowdell had made a statement saying that Jerry Hutch had met him in a park in Whitehall a few days after the Regency and that he confessed to being one of the gunmen that day. This was bombshell evidence because in seven years of writing articles about the Regency, I don't think there had ever been any suggestion that Jerry Hutch was actually one of the gunmen who carried out the attack. This is the first time we'd heard this and it was certainly took us all unaware because we weren't expecting this at all. But this came from a claim from Jonathan Dowdall, which the Gardaí had only learned about a week or two before the trial started. Dowdall's claim was particularly important when looking at the charge put in front of Jerry Hutch. It was the state's case that Jerry was not just the orchestrator of the Regency, but he was also one of the men with his finger on the trigger. A charge of facilitation would have been a much easier task for the prosecution. Their murder case rested on two main pieces of information. First was the car recordings of Dowdall and Hutch's trip up north. Second was Dowdall's own testimony of the monk's supposed admission. These are the two main areas we'll focus on in our examination of the court's proceedings. The recordings would be a seminal part of this 52-day trial. Brendan Graham, Hutch's senior counsel, was keen to get these dismissed, stating that the audio was obtained illegally by the Gardaí. The guards viewed what happened and the state viewed what happened at the Regency as being so serious that it required special measures and a special response where the normal rules of play went out the window and they decided that they needed to do everything possible to dismantle the Hutch crime organisation. The defence argued that, well, because of the fact that this took place outside of Northern Ireland, it should be inadmissible as evidence. Ultimately, the judges decided that, in the interest of justice, they would allow the tapes. The recordings were played to the court over a course of three days. They were played to the trial. Effectively, Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall travelled north to meet a number of dissident Republicans. Jonathan Dowdall said that they were hoping, or certainly Jerry Hutch was hoping, that they would mediate in the feud with the Kinnins. On March 7, 2016, some two months before Jonathan Dowdall was arrested on his way to Dubai, a former Sinn Féin councillor took off in his Toyota Land Cruiser on a road trip with Jerry Hutch. Unbeknownst to both men, the Guardian had attached a tracker and recording device to the car. And we're aware of their every move. 
At 2.20pm, Dowdall parked his car at Keeley's pub, a spot not too far from Dublin Airport. There he'd meet up with Jerry Hutch. The monk pulled in, and Jerry headed towards the car, taking care to keep as low a profile as possible. He was wearing a black beanie, which stretched far down across his forehead. He took a quick look around and opened the door. As the door shut, the radio played out loud. Morning, Jared. How are you? Jerry gave him a nod and didn't say too much as he buckled his belt. Dowdall slipped the jeep into gear and headed out of the car park laneway on the drive up north. Well, what we heard, what the trial heard, was that they were going north to meet a number of distant Republicans to try and get them to mediate in the feud with the Kinahans. By this stage, the feud had only just begun. But Eddie Hutch, Jerry's brother, had already been taken down by the Kinahans. It was clear he wanted to try and stop things escalating further. The men had a number of stops planned, the first was a meeting with Shane Rowan, a.k.a. Fish. Rowan would later be found with the three AK-47s used in the Regency, in the boot of his car. So at that point, it's clear that Jerry Hutch, or certainly Hutch family, are in possession of these guns, and as any suite, they were going to give them to the northern wing of the IRA. It was a kind of a gift. The pair began discussing the Donegal man and their plan to offload the guns to him. So what's the plan with Fish? He'll park his motor somewhere. The lad's going to pick her up, go and take it, and bring it back to the tree house in the bill. Shall fish is thick as fuck? He's a few screws loose, all right, Jerry replied. On the tapes, you hear um, Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall on, on a number of occasions refer to the three yokes. Now, it has been established that when they say yokes, they were referring to the three AK 47 rifles which were used in the Regency Hotel. At this point, it was clear that Jerry Hutch was in charge of these weapons because he said that he was going to throw these on up to the dissidents as kind of a, a gift. The conversation flows on as they discuss other members of the distant Republican group. It's clear that Dowdall is the one brokering the meeting. Jerry's cautious as to who they'll be crossing paths with. What's the story with this lad, Kevin? Is he like us? Or is he up to his bollocks and everything? No, Kevin is sound. Jared, he's straight by the book. Don't go through Fish Rowan. It's clear from the tapes Dowdall has a natural distrust of Shane Rowan. It comes up on a number of occasions throughout their journey. The car continued up north and moved out of Dublin. At this stage, the conversation turns to something more sinister. Jonathan Dowdall spoke during those journeys about the use of detonators and how kind of straightforward it might be if you ever wanted to, you know, use any kind of explosives. It's clear Dowdall is trying to impress Hutch with his knowledge. He seems to offer it up as a possibility to use in the feud if the de-escalation tactics don't work. There's no issues with the stuff. It's odorless and all. Gerard, you can have it in your pocket. The only problem is that you need a detonator. And that's the hard part, right? Once you have that, you could destroy a whole fucking building. Take out the bottom of a car with the stuff. Whatever it's stuck to, it'll blow up. 
Later on, the conversation switches to passing on the Regency guns. It's clear that Hutch has control of their movement, but also has an ulterior motive for passing them onto the dissidents. You see, the reason AK-47s were used in the Regency was to cause confusion. They were the weapon of choice for the IRA. The gang were hoping to throw the scent towards dissidents rather than the Hutch gang themselves. Not just that. The IRA were also known for disguising soldiers in women's clothes to carry out attacks. It might explain the reasoning of having one member of the hit team dressed in drag. Jerry explains a cunning plan in the hope the guns would later be found by police in the distance control. Twelve months time, there's two RUC men dead there and them things are ballistically traced. Yeah, they're gonna blame them on the Regency. One way or another, they're in it, Jared. It didn't take long for the two of them to get talking about the target of the Regency, Daniel Kinahan. At 2.51pm, the two continued to head north, approaching Dundalk. Like, Daniel looks in a fucking heap. From the photographs we've seen of him, on the paper. I can see why he's like the way he is. I heard from a lot of people, he's in an awful way. He fucking should be. I read the Spanish are coming down on them. Rushing their case through. Dowdall's confident the net is closing tighter on the Kinhans, as he exclaims. Either way, they're going to jail, Jared. Either way. There's no question about that. The pair begin to discuss the Regency attack. Jonathan Dowdall mentions on the tapes that there was a lot of speculation within, within the media that the Gardaí were, knew who the six people were who executed the attack on the Regency. Just goes to show you. I don't think the way the papers are portraying it, that they know. I don't think they actually have a fucking clue about the Regency, Jared. What do you mean? Jerry replies. I don't think the police know what is being portrayed in the paper. That they're saying we know who the six people are. So the fucking six people don't even know. No one fucking knows. Which was a strange comment to make because clearly those six must have known if they planned and executed this major assault on the North Dublin Hotel in the middle of the afternoon. They must have been some way involved in it. This point in the tapes is important, as it somewhat contradicts Dowdall's confession. That Hutch had said both him and Mago Gately were two of the hit team. The car continues north, and talks move to peripheral figures within the Kinahan gang. Jerry stays mainly silent, but Dowdall suggests something shocking. To get distance to kidnap, girlfriend of Thomas Bomber Kavanagh. There's a yoga on in Ennis and Kavanagh's board would always be at it. Not saying do anything to the board, Jared. I'm just saying there's a thing on. It's something to do with this big bleeding competition every year. It's like a big dancing yoke. It might be something they might be interested in. Say they grabbed her, Jared. Get them to do it now. Hutch shrugged the statement off. It was clear he could see a dark path ahead, unless someone could step in and try and calm things down. Jerry Hutch was anxious to get mediation in the feud. He'd been very hurt and upset by the murder of his brother Eddie Hutch, who was assassinated three days after David Byrne. 
Patsy and the family and all that are talking about some fucking peace process. Either way, there's some of them that don't deserve amnesty. But these bleeding killings, it's not right. There has to be another way. There's other ways of punishing people. Don't be using a gun all the time. The heartache that's left behind when a fucking person's dead. His brother Eddie is never far away from his mind during the trip. He wanted revenge against the guns for hire. And doubt all agrees. He kind of felt that if there was any deal to be made, that he would have been anxious to get the gunmen who assassinated um, his brother handed up to him as a kind of sweetener to any deal. Them little cunts that did, Neddy. I do some sort of deal that they're giving up. And our cunts, Jared, they'd give up that man he would. Who's getting whacked? Because you can't let them cunts off the hook. They're fucking hired guns. They're going to be dealt with. Yeah. They killed your brother. And they're killing people in the community. Yeah. They have to go. And that's it. Closing up on 4pm, the two approach their first destination in Lisbon. It's clear these times have been troubling for Jerry. He makes light of his safety concerns. He's worried about the distance turning on them. Dowdall, however, takes the chance to reassure Hutch on his ability to protect him. Make sure we're not fucking ambushed. <laughs> you have to take the blade most, don't you? Ah, you have to. The likes of these Kinahan cunts. They'd pay half a million quid to have you done. When I met them before, I was ready to round them with the card if needs be. We put that straight into gear. Did you not see that? I was watching his hands. You fucking have to. But no, Gerard, you'll be all right. They're not going to do that, Gerard. Money's not everything to everybody, Gerard, you know. It is to some people. To a lot of people, it fucking is. The radio turns up in the car. The catchy rhythm of Missing, a 90s dance number by English duo, Everything But The Girl, can be heard in the background. Get two E's, will you? Says Hutch, as the pair chuckle together. At 4pm, the two get out of the car at Lisbon for their first meeting. Returning an hour later, Dowdall seemed pleased with the conversation he'd had. Oh, he's no fella, young man. Same very fond of you, Gerard. Yeah, he's a cool lad, you know. But people can only do so fucking much. Gerard, he offered to help you there about 15 poxy times. The car continues on to Belfast, where they pull into the Maldron Hotel near the airport. Jerry goes in to collect the purse that his wife had left behind on a previous visit. When he returns to the car, conversation turns back to the Kinahans. The audio seems to infer that Hutch had control over the firearms used in the Regency. Dowdall compliments the use of AK-47s. I think the Kinahan gang are after being took out of a hard enough. They put stuff back into order. I think they're after getting a good wallop there. Hutch replied. All they done, Jared. They just pushed too hard this time on the wrong cunt. That's what happened. And you know what the best move you did was? 
the particular yokes that were used. That in itself made some fucking statement. Well, Jerry Hutch was clearly in control of the firearms. You could tell by the way he was speaking on that journey that certainly he had control of them on the day, which was the 9th of March 2016. Now, that didn't necessarily mean to say he was in control of those firearms on the 5th of February when David Byrne's murder took place. But it's those comments that kind of the guardie went after that pinpointed the fact that he must have been involved in the murder of Byrne if he is in control of those weapons. The best move you did. This was a line the state would hone in on. Dowdall clearly credits Jerry Hutch with choosing AK-47s as the weapon of choice. At 6pm, the men take a pit stop for a bite to eat. Returning 30 minutes later, they ironically start talking about police surveillance. What about bugs? Do you have anything to check for stuff like that? No, I haven't, no. Said Jerry. What about, say if the cops raided your gaff, Gerard? Would you not be wary of them putting them in, or something like that? Or would they bother that bollocks? I'd say they have a lot of places bugged, yeah. He went on. The two make their way along back roads in the dark. Dowdall receives a phone call from Paul Wee Bosco McCready. We're on the way. This thing is bringing me through the back roads. About another 45 minutes, I'd say. See you at the usual spot. So we're cleared on this, Jared. We're going to push for them two and the others, yeah? They pull in at the shops and Dowdall receives another call. This time from Shane Rowan with further instructions. As he hangs up, Dowdall's fuming. I'd love to down that cunt, and I'm not being bad. He does my bleeding head in. Bleeding dime bar. At quarter past eight in the evening, the noise of a car door opening could be heard, and Shane Rowan's voice appears again, this time in person. Rowan explains that the two are going to have to wait for their meeting with one at the distance. Kevin, Tyrone O'Neill. Nodding to the building in front of them. There's a society meeting going on. The two had no other option than to wait patiently for him. Roughly 15 minutes passed before the car door opened once again. The two men got out. They met with the distance in a back alley, keeping things brief, but still, any meeting in these times that took place out in the open was bound to feel uncomfortable for Jerry Hutch. Fifteen minutes later, the engine rumbles back to life once more. Inside, Dowdall grows anxious over the meeting, particularly his interaction with Kevin Tyrone O'Neill. Did you see the way he was looking? He kept staring at me. After the Regency, some distance were angry at the involvement of Kevin Flackcap Murray in the operation. Dowdall was terrified he'd get the blame. But they wanted to know how Kevin Murray ultimately became involved in the Regency. There's no evidence to say Jonathan Dowdall did it, but it was certainly their suspicions at the time. That con Kevin thinks that's me, Gerald. Do you know that? Do you know that? I get one in the back of the nut over Murray. Kevin thinks I'm behind that. He thinks I'm behind Murray coming in. There was always suspicions that he was working in the background. 
and tipping the UNLA off with different stuff. The pair seemed deflated after the meeting. It seemed that not much was settled on. They begin the long drive home. Fucking four hours drive to stand in a line for five blade minutes. Did you not realise you were talking to the three wise men? The three chiefs? Five grown men standing in a line with Five grown men and one wee man. Butch quips. The Sunday Times, John Mooney. It was really clear to me that they had met them for different reasons to what Jared Hutch thought the meetings were about. They were really sussing them out. They were very keen to know why Kevin Murray had been involved in a shooting in Dublin and how much money he had got for this and who else was involved. Like these groups tend to be very tight-knit, they're very security conscious these days. They all know one another and they don't really have much time for people outside their groups. They're, they're kind of self-contained subcultures now, more than anything else. Eventually the two calmed down about the meeting and the chat moved on to the subject of politics. Dowdall brings up his ex-colleague, the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald. The two scalded her furious at our comments about the feud and more specifically the murder of Eddie Hutch MacDonald didn't attend the funeral and publicly claimed no association to the Hutch gang She was on the telly the night Nettie got shot She branded everyone as scumbags But she's were good enough to use Gerald for votes He's were good enough to use him for money A comment that MacDonald would later stringently deny And Nettie's funeral? She should have went to that. Do you not think so? There wasn't one of them were at it, Hutch replied. She stayed away from that on purpose. It was getting late into the night, and Dowdall once again brought up Daniel Kinahan. At 10.50pm, they crossed back over into the Republic, into County Monaghan. The only advantage for them is them little wankers running around doing his dirty stuff. Even if the guards sit on the Kinahans and the lame bones and all of them, they could still get all the unfulness to go around doing that dirty shit. Is it true about the million quid on offer? As a bounty for your life? That's what it said in the paper. The million dollar man. With them involved now, you're going to be watching your back for the rest of your fucking life. All of us are, including Kinahan. He'll be thinking the same. It was after midnight at this stage. Dowdall and Hutch made their final approach back towards Keeley's pub, where they'd met earlier in the day. As the car was turning into the car park, just off the Swords Road, Dowdall expressed some worry to Hutch. He was afraid what the distance might do with the guns up north. I'm worried about how those jokes would be used. I don't want to read in the papers four babies were killed that would destroy me Gerard I'm not into that there's no cause for that anymore Gerard there's no word of bleeding child dying or fucking anything like that but them stupid cunts don't even they don't even see that they just say are these things happening wars 
It's not a war, Jared. Hutch checked his pockets to make sure he left nothing in the car. He was exhausted. It was a long day listening to Dowdall blabber on. The pair shook hands and Jerry opened the door. As he got up from the seat, Dowdall grabbed his arm. Jared, there was a five on the go home. Just give me a text. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I've watched a number of Supergrass witnesses give evidence at the Special Criminal Court in the past and they can be largely broken into two different types. There are people that find themselves in the middle of a chaotic situation and they can give evidence in court about what they've seen and they tend to tell it as it is. I'm thinking about Dave Rupert to give evidence against Michael McEvitt, the leader of the Real IRA. And then you have this other type, and these are usually criminals who try to lessen their own involvement in criminal activities in the hope that they can somehow rehabilitate their own character. Jonathan Dowdall first took the witness stand on Monday, December the 12th. It was the day everyone was waiting for. The politician gone bad. The convicted torturer. 
and the man who had turned his back on the Hutch criminal organisation. The courtroom was packed that morning. There was a sense of anticipation, even excitement, to hear what Dowdall had to say. For eight days, Jonathan Dowdall sat in the jury box to give his evidence, and he was clearly very nervous. He was quite flustered. The defence made um, numerous attempts to kind of get under his skin. Jared asked me if I saw the Sunday world. I told him we did, and that I thought the person in drag was Patrick Hutch. Dowdall went on to say, Hutch told him that two of the shooters dressed up as ERU members were Jerry himself and James Mago Gately, a close confidant of the Hutch gang. Now, there was no other evidence to support this claim whatsoever. There was no CCTV, there was no forensic, there was nothing else. He was in a panic. It wasn't like any other time I'd seen him. He asked me could I get people up the north to intervene. At the time I thought it could be fixed, I wasn't gone on the idea. But innocent people's lives were at risk. From the get-go, the defence had argued that this meeting never took place. It couldn't have, and it certainly did not. Now, Jerry Hutch never provided any kind of evidence for where he was on the 5th of February, because he doesn't have to. So he doesn't have to prove anything. He doesn't have to prove he was even in the country. He doesn't have anything to prove about where he was. Jerry Hutch has Brendan Grehan defending him, who's one of the top senior counsels in the country. He has both prosecuted and defended in many um, high-profile trials. In this case, he was on the prosecution side in the murder of Anna Creasel. He was also involved in the Mr. Moonlight case. He cross-examined Jonathan Dowdall for six and a half days and basically quizzed him on every single aspect of his life from the time he was young right up until the, the present day, I guess. And he is, he's no question he's one of the best. Brendan Graham kicked off the cross-examination by immediately questioning Dowdall's initial statement. Dowdall had claimed that the Whitehall meeting had taken place on Monday, February the 8th, the same day Eddie Hutch was murdered. He claimed the meeting took place at some point between 11 and 12 that day. But Gran had a significant piece of information up his sleeve. Cell site records from where Dowdall's phone had been during that period. The first ping, as we can see, is from a cell tower off the Navan Road at 11.58am. The next one is in Dundalk at 1pm. So it couldn't have been that day, Mr. Dowdall. To which he simply replied in defence. Then it wasn't the eight then, was it? Dowdall stated that during his Garda interviews, he told the cops that he believed it was the Monday. But it could also have been the Sunday. Judging by his account, the meeting had to have taken place sometime after the Sunday World went to print. But before Eddie Hutch was murdered on the Monday evening. Graham brings up further cell site analysis. A record showed that Dowdall's phone did ping a mast in Whitehall that Sunday. But it was at 3.15pm. Dowdall argues that it was a long time ago. And that his memory might have deceived him at that particular time. Graham replied, 
You've always stated that this meeting took place between 11 and 12 p.m. Are we going to move the time to suit the record? There is no support here, other than Mr. Dowdall's word. We've established this meeting cannot have happened on the 8th. And now it appears it didn't happen on the 7th either. What I'm telling is the truth. The truth is the truth. He told me he shot that kid, and he met me in the park. If it wasn't for me up here, this whole case would be based off Colin Fox. If the judges in this chamber don't believe me, that's up to them. When they went north a month later, there is a comment from Jerry Hutch about the six men. Sure, the six men don't even know who each other were. And this would have been Jonathan Dowdall's time to say, well, hang on a second, you told me you were one of those six men a month ago. And he never did. And it's interesting from the journey to Northern Ireland that in those 10 hours of recorded audio, Jonathan Dowdall did not mention this meeting in Whitehall once during that trip. And it was only a few weeks previously, you would imagine he would have said it at some point. He would have mentioned this meeting and he didn't. Gren did well to establish doubt on whether Dowdall was a trustworthy witness. He wanted to further focus on parts of his character that might throw his testimony into question. The defence made an application to show footage of Dowdall and his dad torturing Alex Hurley in 2015. Justice Tara Burns denied the request. But Gren was still free to question him on it. What he done was terrible. It was a long time ago. I apologised again in court over it. I'm not downplaying what I did. I'm disgusted and ashamed of what I done. Gren went on to say that because of the Garda search on his home for guns and explosives, it became public knowledge that Dowdall and his dad Patrick were members of the IRA. I was never a member of the IRA. You were very indignant about the search of your home, Mr. Dowdall. That you had been hard done by. Where are you getting that from? I'm getting that from the man who went on Joe Duffy to tell the nation how unfair it was. Gren went on to play clips from the infamous Liveline conversation with Joe Duffy. He asked Dowdall if he remembers the interview. Vaguely. I wasn't myself at the time. I was, I was taking tablets. The tape plays. Joe, I'm well regarded in the north inner city. I've no criminal convictions. I've no connections to any crime. You're denying any involvement in criminality? I accept that I'm classed as a criminal now over what happened with Mr Horley. I've worked my whole of my entire life. The fact is... I was never involved in criminality, in the sense of making ill-gotten gains. The conversation moved back to the Regency itself. Dowdall was asked about himself and his father, booking a room for Kevin Flatcap Murray the day previously. We didn't know what the hotel room was going to be used for. Graham quickly reminded him that during his initial guard interview after his Dublin airport arrest, he had told officers that he didn't know who was involved in the attack. That Jerry never spoke to him about the incident. Another lie, Mr. Dowdall. 
It was a lie of necessity. My family would have been killed if I told. Dowdall's character was beginning to crumble in front of the court. And there was more to come. Graham was keen to ask Dowdall about his visits to Castle Ree Prison. Not from a stint of his own, of course, but to visit convicted murderer Pierce Macaulay. Pierce Macaulay is a very notorious distant Republican. He served a, a significant sentence for the manslaughter of Detective Sergeant Jerry McCabe in a, in a bank robbery in Adair in 1996. Um, he was ultimately released under the Good Friday Agreement. Back in 2015, when Jonathan Dowdall went to visit him in prison, he was serving a lengthy sentence again for vicious assault on his wife in their home. So he was a very unsavoury character. He has a notorious reputation. But it was clear that Jonathan Dowdall had an association. He had a relationship with the man. Dowdall was visiting Macaulay to get advice on whether or not distance would be able to intervene in the feud. Gren asked, You were a friend of Pierce Macaulay? I wasn't a good friend, but I did know him. You made monthly visits to him in Castlery Prison, Mr Dowdall. I visited him well, probably two or three times. You might be underestimating that a little bit. Gren takes a moment and retrieves a collection of documents. They're records of Dowdall's visit to the prison between 2015 and 2016. Brendan Graham, who was Jerry Hutch's lawyer, caught him out on that and from prison records he was able to tell the court that Jonathan Dowdall had visited Pierce Macaulay 14 times in 2015. One of those times was two days after Gary Hutch was murdered in Marbella. So the suspicions at the time that, you know, was he necessarily going um, north to try and get people to mediate in the feud or was there something more to it? The crowd in the courtroom perked up. It was an astonishing moment in the trial. Is it a crime to visit someone in prison now? No, it's not a crime, but it's a crime to lie on oath. It's a crime to say you weren't friendly with him. It's a crime to say you only visited him two or three times, when you know full well that wasn't the truth. He was getting more and more flustered as the minutes went on. He asked if he could take a break from proceedings. Gren went on to question him about his involvement in feud resolutions and his conversations with Macaulay. Dowdall claimed Macaulay told him not to get involved and to leave it. But you did get involved, asked Gren. I only got involved because at the time I thought Patsy was going to be murdered for something his kids did. Towards the end of Dowdall's cross-examination, witnesses to the court described the interaction becoming increasingly animated. He became agitated when Hutch's attorney inferred that Dowdall had provided testimony only to get his family access to the witness protection program and his murder charge dropped. Dowdall exclaimed to the court, I'm doing the best I can. I didn't have to be here. I'm here. You are here, Mr. Dowdall, because you got a murder charge dropped. They said he was only giving evidence out of his own. He was acting out of his own self-interest and that he only wanted to speak about things that were on his terms. 
and not about other things. And because of this, it was very hard to find him credible in any kind of way. This is nothing to do with me getting a murder charge dropped. I'm sorry for what happened to David Bourne and that family. And I'm sorry for what I said to offend that family. But I wasn't involved in that murder. He continued by elaborating on his decision to assist the accused brother, Patsy. In January 2016, in an effort to put an end to the conflict. I wasn't part of any Republican movement. I was just trying to help. Jerry was well able to contact the lads up north himself. Yet I was sent up there like a guinea pig. Patsy was involved in it. I trusted Patsy at the time. We built up a rapport over the years. Doubt all doubles down. If down the road, I'm required to come into this court and give evidence against Patsy in the same way that I've given evidence against Jared, I'll do that. The former councillor pauses for a moment. As if he's pondering the reasons he's chosen to become the state's key witness. I'm not a rat. I don't care if I'm killed. But nobody will touch my children. Jonathan Dowdall spent eight days on the stand before the case took a break over Christmas. His contributions were box office, to say the least. Never had a trial captured the public imagination like this before. He became a household name across the country. People became familiar with the darkest, most sinister aspects of his past. And people became obsessed in what the future held for the man. The trial resumed on the 11th of January and continued on for another three weeks. The three-judge panel heard more witness testimony from Gardee. Phone records and CCTV were examined, as well as an in-depth analysis of the cases of Paul Murphy and Jason Bonney, Hutch's co-accused. Eventually, on Friday, January the 28th, proceedings came to an end. On the final day, both the prosecution and defence had one more opportunity to make their case with their closing arguments. The state focused mainly on the content of the audio tapes, claiming they directly implicated Hutch in the Regency attack. In her summon of Fiona Murphy argued that because he was in control of the weapons on the 9th of March, that he was clearly involved in the Regency. Clearly he was, must suggest he was one of the gunmen because of this. Later that day, Grehan took the stand for one last time. Brendan Grehan, summing up his, his case uh, to the three judges, said that it's clear that during that journey north, Jonathan Dowdell, that criminality is discussed. It's clear, it's clear that the Hutches might have been involved in the Regency in some respect, or certainly family members might have been involved. But there was nothing whatsoever to prove that Jerry Hutch was one of the gunmen at the Regency. The prosecution's case is that Mr. Hutch is one of the three tactical men who entered the hotel. That he's one of the, dare I call them, fit-looking action men dressed as Gardie. Where did they get that from, I ask? This is a case where in terms of the evidence against Mr. Hutch, there are no forensics, no phone records, no CCTV of him on the 5th, 
No evidence he was even in the country, let alone at the Regency, apart from Jonathan Dowdall's word. Brendan Graham focused on that a lot in his summing up that there's nothing whatsoever to support Jonathan Dowdall's claim that Jerry Hush ran into the Regency Hotel armed with an AK-47 and murdered David Byrne. The Special Criminal Court is a unique place. It follows completely different procedures to the regular criminal courts. In the Special Criminal Court, because three judges are deciding the case, they need to go off and take time to consider their verdict and it has to be written up fully. So this, this process does take a considerable amount of time, depending on the trial as to how, how long the judges are going to take. Often they can take about, on average, about a month. In this case, they kind of gave themselves three months to, um, to put their judgments together, to come to the decision themselves. On the 12th of April, Jerry Hutch sat quietly in a cell in Wheatfield Prison. It had been nearly three months since his trial had ended. It was a special day for the monk. He was celebrating his 60th birthday inside. For such a landmark event, there were no frills, no party. He was granted a video call with his family and some cake was later cut in the evening. It was an unusual birthday in many regards. In just six days' time, he'd find out his fate. At his age, if guilty, he could possibly spend the rest of his life behind bars. It wasn't a thought worth bearing. Outside the prison walls, everyone was fixated on the soon approaching judgment day. Pubs, cafes, WhatsApp groups. Everyone was talking about the trial and everyone had an opinion on it. Do you think he'll get off? What's going to happen with doubt all after? The gangland trial of the century had well and truly lived up to its reputation. I got to the court that morning at about uh, about 9.30, I guess, about an hour and a half before she was due to deliver it. Now, there was already a huge crowd outside the courtroom of photographers and cameramen. But if you were a passing motorist, you would know that there was something big about to happen. Before it was delivered, the courtroom was packed. All the media benches were taken, the guard benches were taken, and there was certainly an air of anticipation, I guess. It was unclear what the outcome was going to be for Jerry Hutch. Most had it at 50-50, the flip of a coin, on whether or not he would ever see freedom again. By this stage, he'd been on remand for a year and a half. He'd gone grey, and his bushy beard had grown to extreme lengths. The Special Criminal Court has some unique distinctions which would impact proceedings on the day. 
Judge Tara Byrne started delivering her judgment at about 11 o'clock in the morning and because of the length of it we always knew it was going to take a considerable period of time but she has to read from beginning to end and the decision in the judgment is not until the very last few few paragraphs Shortly after 11 Hutch entered the packed courtroom It would be a while still before he'd learn his fate Judge Tara Burns, she said that they only finished it the night before. And these are working judges with other cases to hear. So they have to they have to kind of get together and, and look at the facts. And ultimately her judgment was 142 pages long. So that tells you that literally no stone was left uncovered in uh, coming to their decision. Before the judges delivered their verdict, it was clear that they were going to focus on two areas of evidence. Namely, these were the 10 hours of audio which were recorded between J- Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall and also this alleged meeting that Jonathan Dettel claimed took place in Whitehall Park. The case against Jared Hutch is that he was one of two shooters who murdered David Byrne at the Regency Hotel on the 5th of February 2016. It is not the prosecution's case that Jared Hutch planned the operation at the Regency, but was not present. The case is that he was present as an actual participant and an actual shooter. The surveillance recording portrays an unrecognisable individual to the respectable, successful businessman and elected representative. It portrays a ruthless, base, callous criminal involved in making bombs, suggesting assassinations of people involved with the Hutch organised crime group and playing the system although an elected public representative. A real question which this court must ask itself is who is the court dealing with? A significant question mark hangs over Jonathan Dowdle's character and reliability. She kind of felt that it was a very, very 11th hour kind of attempt to uh, get off this murder charge and that clearly was was a lot of her focus. A statement was only taken from Jonathan Dowdle 10 days before he was due to go on trial for murder. It cannot be said he found God and decided to do what was right. He was acting out of his own self-interest. Jonathan Dowdle has derived a significant benefit from giving a statement to Angarda Siakana. He now has a chance at a life instead of a possible conviction for murder. She, she mentioned repeatedly about his own character and his own, his own I guess, the relationship with the truth, which was a very, very weak one in many respects, because clearly there were parts of his past and parts of his present which he lied about and lied about a lot. The judgment began to pick up pace. Journalists scribbled down every detail they could. The court is satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that Jared Hutch had possession of the three rifles used at the Regency, by the 7th of March at least. But it does not accept that the short time period between the Regency and the 7th of March permits inference to be drawn that he had control of the guns since the Regency. Indeed, the audio establishes otherwise. At most, the segments give rise to a possible inference that Jared Hutch gave the go-ahead for the Regency. However, the case against Jared Hutch is not one of common design, but rather participation. Although one wonders what the case was intended to be, before the introduction of Jonathan Dowdle as a prosecution witness. 
As for the shooters, shooter number one runs around the place at a fast pace. The owner of the Regency, James McGettigan, referred to him being slight and that he realised that he was quite young. Shooter number two jumped up and down from the reception desk with agility and also proceeded to run around at speed. The reasonable possibility that Jared Hutch, a man in his 50s at the time of the Regency, does not fit the movements of the shooters. Justice Bourne's next declaration caused jaws around the courthouse to drop in unison. In fact, a reasonable possibility arises on the evidence that the Regency was planned by Patsy Hutch and that Jared Hutch stepped in as head of the family to attempt to sort out the aftermath of the Regency particularly as his own life was at risk. Tension filled the air. Jerry continued to look on into the distance. Not far from him were the family of David Bourne, sitting in the crowd. If Hutch was nervous, he didn't show it. But not until he heard the eternal words of not guilty could he breathe a sigh of relief. As the court has determined that it cannot rely on the evidence of Jonathan Dowdle alone for the reasons set out, the court is therefore not satisfied beyond reasonable doubt of the guilt of Jared Hutch on the charge of murder of David Byrne. And will return a verdict of not guilty on count number one. The deafening silence of the courtroom suddenly broke. Some members of the gallery were clearly upset and others ecstatic in relief. Journalists shuffled around to try and compile the last of their notes. It was going to be a busy few hours ahead, but Jerry barely flinched. When the verdict was delivered, he calmly nodded his head in contentment. His response seemed somewhat subdued, considering the gravity of the situation. But that was Jerry all over, cool as a cucumber, even in the most perilous of situations. As the verdict was delivered, naturally all members of the media rushed to social media, to Twitter, to announce the verdict. He was surrounded by his lawyers. He was pretty much free to go from that moment. You're not sure if somebody is going to kind of walk out the door or if they need to go back to the prison or to a guard station for any kind of logistical matters. If the scene inside lacked any drama, what was waiting for him outside the courts certainly made up for it. But after being in custody for a year and a half, it was told by one of his solicitors very quickly that now he's gone out the front door. Do you have any reaction, Jerry, after you've been cleared of the murder of David Byrne? The scene was astonishing. Have any reaction, Jerry? Hundreds of journalists followed the monk down the street trying to get their shot or ask their question. What did you think of the judge's ruling, Jerry? Members of the public passing the court beeped in support. Jerry stayed silent as a supporter of his tried to clear journalists away. The monk was so taken aback by the crowds that he didn't quite know where to go. He began walking up Infirmary Road before circling back on himself. 
Eventually, a taxi pulled in. He hopped into the car before it drove off down the keys. Videos began circulating online instantly. Offices around the country paused as people gathered around laptop screens. Radio shows cut interviews to go live to the scene. It was iconic, a moment of Irish history being played out in real time. You have to remember that most of the public wouldn't have seen Jerry Hutch's face in years because he'd been in custody and because of the way the criminal courts of justice are set up, you can't kind of video or you can't film anybody going in and out of the building so nobody had seen what he, what he looks like. The average person hadn't seen what he looks like and of course those iconic shots now of him walking out the front door with his long hair and his long beard will remain etched, I guess, in the, the public psyche of Ireland for probably some years to come. It was clear that using Dowdall as a state witness had gravely backfired for the DPP. He had picked and chosen his way through the truth, which shrouded everything that he said in the stand in a cloud of uncertainty. You know, what he didn't really understand was is that if he turned around and said, I did this, I did that, I was centrally involved in this, I shouldn't have done it, but that, that was me then you could give a lot of weight to that evidence. But it was his continual denials until the evidence was produced to him that really rendered his evidence as worthless. And I have to say, I think the prosecutors and the guardian involved in that investigation probably now would be of the opinion that the case would have ran very differently if they had not r- relied on him at all. I'm amazed looking at this case uh, as a whole that they decided to rely on the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall. The case against Jerry Hutch, if it was just solely based on the tapes, which it would have been before Dowdall's evidence, would have been based on the conversations he had. There's nothing on those conversations to suggest he was one of the gunmen who was involved, but certainly there was, there's discussions about uh, the guns and, and the feud, and, and you could make an argument about common design, or that he was involved in facilitating the murder, or that he was in possession of the firearm. Jerry Hutch had fought tooth and nail, not to have his case heard in the special criminal court. He wanted to face a jury. But John Mooney believes the non-jury panel might have actually been his saving grace. When you think about these questions about the use of supergrass witnesses, etc., it's the one court that is actually robust in its independence insofar as that it doesn't rely on a jury that is capable of hearing evidence from a supergrass witness and discounting it. I'm not so sure a jury would actually do that. I think that people tend to be influenced by what they read in the press and what they hear in bars and pubs when they're out socially and, you know, what they read online. So, sure, I think the judges were correct to discount what this individual said. I think they completely correctly assessed his credibility as a witness and they called it right in the end. And I always think it's very ironic that Jerry Hutch had went to the Supreme Court trying to stop the Special Criminal Court from hearing his trial on the basis that he wouldn't get justice there when in point of fact it was probably the one place in this country that he was certainly going to get a fair trial. And 
that in some ways is a good thing because it shows that the system works and we don't have a tradition in this country of unsafe convictions. So, after a 52-day trial, 140 witnesses, 10 hours of audio tape, and many surprises in between, Jerry walked free into the sunset. There are still many, many questions to be answered about the future of this podcast's main protagonists. What next for Jonathan Dowdall? Where on earth are the Kinahans? Has the monk forevermore got a target on his back? And most importantly, what's lurking around the corner in the years ahead for Irish gangland? Next time on the Kinahans. People ask, why now? Why are law enforcement from across the world pursuing the Kinahans? It's a really simple answer. This particular group has become involved with rogue states such as Iran. It's became involved with terrorist organisations that are affiliates of jihadist networks. So they stopped becoming a criminal problem and have now morphed into an international security problem. The Kinahans is brought to you by the Irish Sun. This series was produced by Urban Media. If you like the podcast, please leave a review. It only takes a second. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.